What is transgression is not sex. No, no, listen to me. I know probably say it. Falling in love is a problem. I don't have to be helpful. Wait, why do I have to be helpful? Look at our priceless art collection and I think, what a great country. I'm good for it. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the most recent episode of Humidum. I'm Pat Norman, I'm your host, and we have a very special sequence of episodes, uh, three episodes in a row that are going to deal with the federal election. Uh, last week, we received news from the United States of America of the incident in Orlando, Florida, where 49 uh, members of the LGBT community were killed in a massacre, like an armed, an armed incident. Uh, gunmen went into the club and killed these people and injured a further f- 53 people. But joining me on this well, month's episode of Humidum is David Barrow, a very good friend of mine who I've spoken to many times in the past about the issue of gay culture and the identity of gay people in the world today. That's right. We'll, we'll unpack this as we go through. Yeah. David, welcome to Humidum. Thank you, Pat. I'm glad to be here. Now, the reason I got you here is because I feel like the Orlando incident, I mean, it's a huge tragedy, but Orlando for me represents an intersection that's sort of like this point of this moment where so many issues that we've got going in society today have come together. Uh, terrorism, um, mm. the idea of gun control in the United States, the the presidential race in the US, uh, Islamic radicalism, um, the concept of of terrorism and how it relates to the Middle East, racism, technology, the the influence. I mean, even these kids sending their text messages to their mums, which is incredibly tragic, but it sort of echoes this idea of technology and how it intersects our lives. The Charlie Hebdo incident, the Paris incident, Martin Place, and of course the dimension of LGBTIQ kids being affected by this. Um, what do you think of Orlando? Like, is this this pivotal moment in in the culture? Yes. I think it's a pivotal moment for the gay and lesbian community around the world. You know, in this perverse sentence that people have said, it's our turn. And it's actually surprising me that it's taken this long for us to be the target. We are jammed together like sardines in these sweaty clubs. We go on these very spangly-wangly uh, parades and it's very easy to kill us. And we're much easier to kill than children. Isn't If you have a, a beef with gay and lesbian people, uh, you can ideologically uh, position them as the other much easier than you can um, six- and seven-year-olds. So it shouldn't surprise us that this has happened. The thing that gets me is that it, do- it hasn't surprised me at all that this has happened in the United States after Sandy Hook. Because after all those kids were killed, and I said at the time, this won't change a thing. And if the United States can't, can't change its gun laws after so many children were murdered, well, they're certainly not going to change it now. And I have no faith that the US can change its gun laws after this. Well, the sad truth of it is that kindergartens, year one, year two, they don't organise very well, and the gays do. And this is the one silver lining out of this tragedy, is that the gay agenda adds a new item, and that's uh, gun control. We have a community which generation after generation have built leaders, activists, organisers in every state, every city of the nation, of the United States. And um, if they add gun control to this, it will be a massive uh, hit 
to the NRA. Um, as Liz Lemon says, why did you have to offend the gay community? They're the most organised of all the communities. I mean, one of the interesting points for me about this is that it sort of catches so many of the issues that we're facing in 2016. It sort of wraps them all up into this one incident in the news, um, the issue of... Uh, Radicalization, which is such a mm. sort of a, th- mm. a thrown about term, and, and people aren't really clear on what it means. But this this young man who did it, there are all these things starting to emerge in the press now that he was homosexual himself, um, which wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Do you think that there is a deeper resonance to Orlando than just a gay hate crime or a terrorist act? I think so, and I think it's because. It's the coming together of multiple ideas and zeitgeists of our time. On Tuesday, I got a call from the CEO of the Muslim Women's Association, Maha Abdo, and they had put together a statement of progressive Muslim leaders uh, and conservative Muslim leaders, but those who shared a position of uh, peace and justice, uh, condemning the attacks and expressing their sympathy and solidarity with the LGBTI community. And in that message recognising that LGBTI Muslims are particularly vulnerable. This is a big step for the Muslim community. And uh, this today we've been uh, putting together a response from the LGBTI community to stand in solidarity with the Muslim community. This is what modern solidarity looks like. And we see this tragic, violent uh, a horrific figure of Donald Trump, Pauline Hansen in our country and other right-wing demagogues across Western societies. And we need to make pluralism work for us. And these are the moments when, we, when it's tested. Now I want to read to you a quote from a status update that was put on Facebook um, by Alex Dark, a young gay man who said, among other things, that... Quote, I'm about as I don't give a shit about what anyone thinks as anyone you'll ever meet. But when I reach to hold Matt, his partner's hand, in the car, I still do the mental calculation of, okay, that car is just slightly behind us, so they can't see. That truck is to my left, and they can see right inside the car. If I kiss Matt in public, like he leaned in for the bike trail the other day, I'm never fully in the moment. I'm always parsing who is around and who is paying attention to us. There's a tension that comes with that, a literal tensing of the muscles that you brace for potential danger. For a lot of us, it's becoming such an automatic reaction that we don't even think about it directly anymore. We just do it. Every LGBT person you know knows what I'm talking about. Those tiny little mental calculations we do over the course of our life add up, and we just got hit with a stark reminder that those simmering concerns, those fears, they probably won't ever go away. So I think that's a really powerful statement that was made on Facebook the other day. It resonated with me because I'm aware of it. And the tiny little mental calculations are something that I think that only an oppressed group must perform. It's so fascinating to hear that because when I read that, I immediately thought about my Muslim brothers and sisters who have expressed exactly the same feeling Mm. uh, about that. And if we can find a way to have everyday LGBTI and everyday Muslim people having a conversation about this, then we start to critique, you know, those systems of oppression and those uh, media outlets of oppression uh, together. And that is something that is going to put the ideologues, whether they're right-wing conservatives or whether they're right-wing sheiks or whether they're, uh, you know, sectarian LGBTI voices, whomever, 
uh, it, it guards us against that. One of the really difficult things to express about this whole concept, I think, is the invisibility of privilege. So one mm. of the, and I mean, I'm Bogan from the Central Coast. So talking about privilege for me is a bit of a ridiculous thing because I, I live and breathe it. It's fun. But trying to talk about privilege to people like me from the Central Coast, I try and explain that one of the most powerful aspects of white male heterosexual privilege is the invisibility that that affords you. If you look like you are a Muslim, if your skin is dark, if you behave camp, you are visible. And the thing that's really difficult to describe is the the privilege of invisibility mm. that you get from a dominant position in society. And I wonder whether or not these mental calculations that take place uh, in these in oppressed groups, and it, it goes for everybody, like women have to make these calculations. Right. You know, the only group that doesn't have to make calculations about whether or not their presence is, you know, going to be a danger to themselves is heterosexual white straight men. But that's really hard to express without sounding like an indictment of heterosexual white straight men, and it's not. At least it's not mm. in my book. Mm. How do you respond to that? Well, the first point is that this conversation helps us as white gay men to understand our white privilege, to remember that the attack was one on... It helps us to remember that the victims were Latin Americans and that if they had died in a South American club, we may not have even uh, reacted in this way. So that's a positive thing. You know, one of the things that we're struggling with is to think about what are we going to do after marriage equality is passed in this country and this calls to question this very idea um, about invisibility do do the gay white powerful pink dollar males become part of the hegemony and i think the people who have some critique and some um some thought about this need to guard against that tendency Mm -hmm. um Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, it is a constant struggle for us who are in privileged positions. How do you explain it? Which is the perpetual it, challenge, it, I think. It is the, it is the perpetual challenge. And, you know, there's people who talk about, uh, talking about difficulty settings on, you know, uh, massively multiplayer online games as an equivalent, you know, using that tactic. I mean, the only way that I have seen is that conversations between people where that white heterosexual male cares about the other person enough to see their point of view, to listen deeply with their heart. Some people don't have, do not have those relationships with others. It's, us to, it's up to us or those who experience that to work hard, not to allow ourselves to be victims enough that we reject those conversations. That we say, we're not going to talk to you about it because you should know better. That's not how, that's not how people work. Because that's the perpetual problem, I think, is that I think a lot of people feel like they're trying to explain to someone who's in a position of privilege uh, where they're coming from, which is hard. And, I mean, I was, I was reading... Yeah, absolutely. I was, recent, I, mean, I was recently reading through some of the work of... Uh, memory service, I can't remember. And her argument was, essentially, I should not have to explain to a person in a position of privilege, why emotion matters to me. I shouldn't have to rationally explain why I am emotional when I am in a, an oppressed position. And that's the, the, the difficulty that's sort of 
made incumbent upon oppressed groups like the LGBT community, the black community, the Muslim community, women, is that they are asked to rationally explain why they're having an emotional reaction to their conditions of oppression in the first place when it's naturally an emotional reaction. It's a really interesting... Yeah, totally. I mean, it's totally fair. Um, We have to use our best faculties uh, of power analysis and strategic thinking to recognise that we live in the world as it is, not as it should be. And that means sometimes that we are going to have to continually uh, talk to people like this. I would say we are given uh, critical faculties to think and unfortunately we live in the world as it is, not the world as it should be. It means that we need to think about power analysis and strategic thinking and that means that we will have to be put in this position if we want to change the way the world works. That's my first point. My second point is this. I don't think it's the rational discussions that move people. It's the stories that move people. It is stories built in relational trust where the other person cares enough about their brother, their sister, their nephew, their niece, their colleague at work, their friend that they met at high school or at university about the way that they're experiencing the world. They listen deeply and then they change their behaviour. It's through story, not through rationality, that people change. Uh, Neil McMahon wrote an article for the ABC and he asked the question, so why this week and why the horror of Orlando? Why is this the thing that sort of catalyzed the gay community? And he said, it doesn't take much thought to state the obvious, that this is personal, that as a gay person I related to the victims in a visceral way and to the cultural setting in a way that triggered a million personal memories of joy and liberation and to the families in whom I could see my own family, my own parents, Ask the parent of a gay child, and many will tell you, having a son or daughter being gay is not an issue for them. It's the nagging fear that eventually the world will find a way to do their child harm. Mm. There's not a thing they can do about it because they have to let them go and live and love and find their way. And then a son sends a text saying, Mummy, I love you. Call the police. I'm going to die. And the world lives down to our worst expectations, even as we had dared hope it might be getting better. I mean, I believe firmly, personally, that the world is getting better. I do. But I guess... Well, well, it's it's not. Uh, it's not getting better when it comes to guns in the United States. Well, it's no, getting, it's you, getting the worse. The US is a mess. That's, that's the mess over there. This is an interesting stat for you. The Paris massacre could happen every single month in the United... Uh, sorry, in, in France. And France would still have a better rate of gun homicide than the United States. Well, it's very interesting you should say this because I've got form when it comes to gun control. I, In 2007, I spent a year in France and I lived with uh, Americans from all different parts of the United States, many of them Southerners. And it was during this time that Virginia, Ta- Virginia Tech happened, the massacre there. And I remember having this conversation with some of the progressives about uh, this was just outrageous. We've got to talk about gun control. I was so angry that they were we're talking about this is the worst massacre in, in American history. I mean, since Wounded Knee, maybe, since any one of the Native American massacres. Um, but I was so angry. The reaction was visceral from the Americans. Uh, you know, uh, the America, uh, an American overheard, a Texan uh, cheerleader, overheard this conversation, wrote it up in a post and sent it to every American in Com, which was the town I was living in. I had friends who I'd uh, you know, studied with, eaten with, worked with, 
you know, day in, day out, as you can only experience when you live in one of these colleges or international houses on, on exchange, come up to me in the corridor screaming at me at the top of their voice. You've got to let people grieve. You've got to let people put the pieces of the puzzle back together. To which, being exhausted, I pleaded, I begged them. I said, please, take the Australian example where a conservative prime minister got rid of the guns. When you put the pieces of the puzzle back together, don't put them back the same way. A few months ago, I got a, a message from that couple. They'd been to a Bernie rally. These were Republicans. I'd reflected after this experience that all you had to do was touch one element of their identity, whether it was evolution or gay marriage or uh, you know, anti-union perspectives or gun ownership, and their whole identity would come cascading down. That was the way the South has built. It's the way the South builds people. And they said to me, David, those conversations we had in France, they were the beginning of a journey for us. And we've become active in our church, which is a more progressive church. We've changed our view on gay and lesbian people and on gun control. And we want to thank you for starting us on that journey. And we're sorry for the way that we treated you during that discussion. I don't understand how the United States is such a broken republic that they can't fix the gun issue there. The tens of thousands of people that are murdered every year by guns in the US and they don't seem to process the fact that other civilised countries, civilised well, well, countries. Well, Patrick, well, Patrick uh, let me stop you right there. Yeah. We are exporting in on a mass scale a little rock that when you burn it, is frying the entire human race. Yes. And we can't stop that. So 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 take the speck, you know, for those of us who have a speck in your eye, we've got a log in ours. Power, politics, uh, you know, in developers' money, money in politics, all of these things are endemic. Yes. The See, you can tell I'm, you can tell I'm from New South Wales. I automatically go the developers' money, but but the, but the, the, the heartbreaking is, thing about this, but the is fact that is, I the gays that... are now the gays are now joining the fight on gun control. And if there's ever been anything positive to come out, are the gay okay? So here's the interesting. Well, thing. not the Throughout right. All of... The right. The the right of the gays won't. But the majority of the gay and lesbian leadership, organisers, activists come from the progressive movement, and they're adding a new cause to their list. And I don't think the NRA know, knows what's coming for them. So let me switch now because the interesting thing about the gay movement for me is that I think the gays have been understated for a very long time as a cultural influence. They're very powerful. Having read Dennis Altman's uh, The End of the Homosexual, and I haven't read yet The Velvet Rage, which is a book that you've recommended to me, but The End of the Homosexual, Dennis Altman wrote post uh, 35, 40 years of gay liberation movement after Stonewall. And the interesting observation was that that gay people were the gatekeepers of the culture in a very powerful way. And then HIV wiped them out in the 1980s. And you've said to me previously on a number of occasions that you don't feel like you have any gay mentors between the ages of 50, 60, because that generation of gays was, you know, destroyed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, gay people are coming back as cultural arbiters because I think they, I think that gay people understate the sheer power that we hold over the culture in the West. Well, power is the ability to act, and when you consider that LGBTI people, particularly gay men, have a 
particular ability to act in the arts. They're given a certain level of credibility around fashion and art and mise-en-scene and film and theatre and music for no other reason except that they come from this particular cadre of people who have made such an influence on, in, I can only speak for Western society, massive influence on Western society and probably every society we have always been the shamans. We've always been the storytellers. We've always been the two spirits. We've always sat between the masculine and the feminine. Now that whole gender binary is coming undone and, and, and we are in a whole new world. But we are born with these critical faculties that make us, because we are different, because we see ourselves through different eyes, we grow a skill. Even the least academic or least intellectual gay person. And I have this always reaffirmed for me when I meet people of this kind, whether they're just modest people of modest means, not high learning, but they're gay people, have a level of critical analysis that people who are much more academically and intellectually gifted in the straight world do not have. Do you think that's... a consequence of the tiny mental calculations that they're making constantly day to day i think it is i think it is it's but it's also it's consciousness you know i mean marx talked about that um i hear feminists talking about that i hear muslim leaders talking about that um why is this consciousness not open to people who are who come from a position of privilege because I suppose you can only engage with that at an intellectual level if you're coming from a privileged position, which is one of the heartbreaking things. You can sort of – how do you make that argument to someone I, who is a privileged person? They say, well, you can't feel it and you can't – you can empathise on some sort of academic level, but you can never really fully get it. And that's not an indictment, but you can't get it. Well, the, for me, the bigger question that I always ponder is – how? How did it come to be? What psychological process has led gay people to have this? I mean, I'm sure someone knows. I don't know. I can't, I can't comment on that. Do we need to explain it to straight people? Or do we keep it with the mystic powers of the gays, the superhero superpowers that we have? I don't I think know. we have superpowers. We crack the Enigma code for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, since, since postmodernism and the linguistic turn mm. in academia um, began to inflect progressive politics. Now... Did you say inflect or infect? Inflect, inflect, inflect mm. progressive politics. Um, I'm, not, I'm not negatively predisposed towards this. I'm, I'm, I'm writing my thesis in the... Uh, I don't know if I could say the sunshine, but the, the warmth of post-structural Foucauldian <laughs> blah... But if you sort of look at the 20th century, I sort of see this movement from Marx into the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory and then on to post-structuralist, post-modernist movements that started, that sort of saw the genesis in the 1960s, 1970s, and identity politics took over and they became bigger in the 80s and 90s. And, and we're in this age now where the critical movement has sort of taken a backseat and this very postmodern version of identity politics has taken the fall, which you and I have spoken about previously because you sort of flagged with me that the struggle for civil rights... I mean, like, I, I feel that the struggle for civil, civil rights now is often focused on this idea of calling out and striving for equality in language 
Um, and just the other day, you actually sent me a, a sort of a food pyramid of violence. And at the bottom of that food pyramid, so at the very top is, is murder, the equivalent of oil, which I have to say Miriam and I had a bit of a binge on cheese earlier this morning after two weeks of no cheese whatsoever. And then the the pyramid of violence goes down to the very bottom to what we, what if I butcher board you, it would be symbolic violence, the, the sort of the violence of language. Jokes and jokes and so on, and yeah. Now, discrimination, day-to-day acts. The day-to-day violence that takes place, has the situation in Orlando reminded us that there are material struggles? Because the thing that worries me and has always worried me about the gay community is that we've become so, and I personally haven't, but we've become so caught up in this battle for marriage equality Mm. that we've lost sight of the fact that, for me, I feel the real struggles facing the gay community are focused around uh, HIV, which is still a massive issue. And on the rise. The children killing themselves. Mm-hmm. So suicide in the gay community, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. for me is the number one. Mm. And the fact that children and young gay people are terrified of coming out, mm. which I think are far more crucial material issues. Or the fact that we let... Uh, gay and lesbian people around the world just because of the way where they've been born rot in uh, UN unsafe UN camps uh, with the threat of violence and rape hanging over them at every turn and we close our borders to them there are many other issues we cannot understate as well and this is this is a sort of a um, a concession to the right although I've I've said this quite a lot don't ever let anyone on the left tell you that ISIS is a fabrication of conservative governments that's ridiculous Mm. they are brutal they've thrown gay men off buildings Mm. so don't ever let anyone tell you that you know people of the left should be supporting this group or or that they're apologizing for this group they're certainly not because these people are bastards so i just wonder sometimes whether or not the material cause is being lost in the symbolic the whole process of othering murder violence rape based on someone's ethnicity, their religion, their sexuality, depends on you not seeing that person as human, not being valid, not being worthy of dignity. That is a process of othering, telling yourself that that is not a human. That is not a human over there. Therefore, they deserve or I can inflict this upon them and it is not. It is simply you know, killing a beast or uh, raping an uh, inanimate object. That process of othering starts with the day-to-day practical as some theologians say, banality of evil. The everyday prejudices, discrimination, jokes, teasing, that is the beginning of that process. And while I have strong critiques of focusing on, only focusing on symbolic uh, slights, it is our responsibility as those affected by it who understand the issues to call that out where we see it. And if we can call that out where we see it afflicted upon others, whether they be women or whether they be uh, Muslim people, whether they be people of uh, refugees or whomever, um, then that makes our community stronger and, and a leader in this space. The issue with gay marriage, and it's one that I obviously feel very deeply about as someone who has wanted to be married for over 11 years to my partner, cannot cloud the fact that there are real problems 
uh, in our society. And you mentioned a number. One that concerns me is the poverty level of gay and lesbian people. The fact that we're, our own communities are disintegrating because our people, our artists, our service workers, our, uh, our teachers, um, our nurses can afford to live in the inner city communities where they feel safe. Uh, the fact that uh, over 30 or 40% of lesbians live, uh, you know, are in poverty. Um, try talking about that with a bunch of uh, gay men from certain circles. It's something that's not very popular at all. So you've created a dichotomy between symbolic and material uh, uh, issues. I would say that they are part of the same tapestry. And uh, if we raise our consciousness... On both, on one, we raise our consciousness on the other. David Barrow, thank you very much for joining me for this discussion on humidum of gays and gay pop cultural politics. I feel like we've learned something, and I certainly hope that our listener has. Oh, I can't imagine anything more pretentious. <laughs> we are the cultural arbiters. <laughs> <laughs>